Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. I'm Lily Cantor and I'm Emma Wilkinson. We're both experienced freelance journalists and in each episode we give practical tips about working for yourself. So today we have a change from our usual format and we're bringing you a special bonus episode to round off series seven. So we wanted to delve deeper into the work of an individual freelance journalist and talk about how they managed to juggle a huge project alongside their regular work and family time. And we really hope that this profile interview will become a regular slot in the future and we're kicking it off with someone we both hugely admire. Yeah, so today we're talking to Simon Mir, who published her debut novel, The Khan. Did I get that right, Simon? You did. Pronunciation, uh, last year. Simon's an award-winning freelance journalist who's written for The Guardian, The Times, The Independent, The Daily Telegraph. The Khan launched rave reviews last year and has been optioned by BBC Studios, I think. That's correct. Yeah. Excellent. Yep. So exciting. The book, uh, it follows a successful London lawyer, Chia Khan, as she unexpectedly replaces her father as head of a local organised crime syndicate in a northern city. It's featured on several best crime thriller lists and it's due to be launched in paperback next week. Yeah, so welcome, Simon. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today. We know how busy you are. Tell us, how is preparation for the uh, paperback going? It's going really well. It's it's crazy. Um, I think when this podcast comes out, you will know that the Khan is the Waterstones thriller of the month, which means that it's going to be featured in every single Waterstones shop window in the country. Wow. And also there's a big poster campaign, which is going to be all over the north, um, in some parts of the southeast and in some of the big London train stations like King's Cross and Waterloo. So go out there and get your picture taken in front of one. How exciting. Oh, That's, That's so brilliant. exciting. Have you been doing lots of promotional interviews for it already? So this week we've just started everything and the big push happens next week. It comes out in May and then it just goes mental. So it's just lots of press and lots of appearances, uh, book signings, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's going to be full on, intense. Busy, busy times, um, which leads us very nicely onto my first point, <laughs> which is about kind of how you juggle all this so you're a freelance writer you're an author you have three young children um so yeah we're going to explore how you manage all those aspects of your life but to start with can you tell us sort of about the evolution of the Khan and where you got the idea from what was the journey from sort of idea to published book how that worked I can. So um, I started out as a cub reporter in local papers. I used to work for the Telegraph Nargis in Bradford, um, Emma, where you and I grew up. Um, and when I was there, we'd always get sent, there'd be walk-ins to the reception area and they'd come in with some really interesting stories. And usually you couldn't get the stories to stand up but they stayed with me. There were sort of like urban myths around cities, like who ran the city, what the underworld was, what was going on. And those stories stayed with me. And um, I always wanted to write fiction. And when I went freelance and I was pregnant with my first child, which was eight years ago, I sat down to write this novel. And I stupidly, naively thought, well, I'll just write during my maternity. And then when the baby's born, he'll sleep. And then I'll just edit and then I'll sell it. And it will go really, really well, which of course isn't how publishing works. Um, so I wrote a draft during pregnancy and then I had a baby that didn't sleep. Um, and then seven years later, managed to get the book published, finally. 
So is the idea come from like, like you said there, um, like a story or myth that you heard is because is, it really intrigued me kind of how do you come up with, with the kind of central concept for the book? Yeah, so I, um, I'm British Pakistani and I'm also of Muslim heritage. And so I wanted to see stories about women who were like me. Um, and, and one of the things I always found was that women like me were represented as either needed rescuing or, um, you know, we were oppressed. And actually all of my friends had always been white throughout school. And I had so much in common with them and we had quite similar backgrounds in some ways. Um, so I wanted to write about how similar we are, but then I also wanted to write crime because I love this idea of crime. I loved The Godfather. And I love the idea of family and I come from this big Asian family. So the idea came from what people do to survive. If you're the child of an immigrant, what you do to survive or what the sacrifices that our parents made when we were, when they came here that we didn't really know about. There were so many things like about my dad, I learned as I became an adult, I, I realized I'd never really thought of him as a person. He was just my dad, you know? Um, and then as I got older, I thought, gosh, when he came in the 60s and 70s, what it must have been like. And then to set up this business and for it to succeed and then to learn to navigate the laws of a country, all of that fascinated me. And also just being sent to court. I got to, did a lot of court reporting when I was at the Telegraph in Argus and sitting in court and seeing people who were just normal. They looked human they were just people right and they committed these crimes and I it planted the seed of what happens to someone that they end up um, at this point having done this thing that's breaking the law that's sort of where it came from I know it sounds really convoluted but I suppose the process was convoluted and it was just finding out what the thread of that story was that I wanted to tell yeah, and I think you've alluded to it a bit there, but I'm really interested in how your experience of journalist um, sort of informed your writing of the book and kind of the stories that are there kind of other aspects of your sort of training as a journalist that helped you or informed you in this in the process of writing the book? Absolutely. I mean, writing to deadline, writing tight copy, knowing how to start a chapter and end it is all essential training that I got as, as a journalist, um, knowing what a hook is, what hooks everybody in. So every chapter that I wrote had to have a hook. The story had to have a hook. Um, I had to know that when you finished one chapter, you needed to, you wanted the reader to go on to the next. And that's all part of that journalistic training. Research making sure that everything I'm saying is grounded in some kind of research. One of the things that we learn is to gather facts, isn't it, and data. And one of the things I learned, I was taught by an editor at the BBC was gather all the information and then throw away the facts and tell the story. And very much fiction is like that. I think it's gather all the information, but you can't put data in there. So you can't put statistics in a work of fiction, which you would put in a news story. Um, so all of those things helped. I, one of the drawbacks of being a journalist and writing um, fiction is that I, I think I underwrote because I just wanted to hold everybody's attention. And so um, when it went to edit, I had to add more, which was actually good because then I, I um, added more under the guidance of an editor. 
that's really interesting yeah and that's what I, one thing I wanted to ask you about is that kind of writing process um and you've sort of said how how journalism helps but when you kind of sat down to write were you going through a different process and did you find that you kind of set specific time aside for it or was it kind of in and amongst everything else that you were doing so I set time aside so one of the great bits of training that you get as a journalist is knowing that you've got a set amount of time and you've got to produce something so there was no indulgence you don't have indulgence do you self-indulgence as a journalist you know you've got a deadline and you've got to hit it so I would work every Saturday Saturday mornings I would take myself away my husband would have the children I would sit in the cafe and I would write solidly for two hours I would sit there for two hours um, working and one of the things um, that I'd learned in journalism was you've got to write that first draft I mean it's going to be a bad draft but you know from experience that if there's no you're not allowed writer's block are you if you've got a deadline and you've got to turn in copy you've got to write something so that you can edit it so I would sit there and I would just write whatever it was and just leave it and not indulge myself. So that that training really helped. Um, it, it's, it's hard to turn, the first time you go from nonfiction to fiction, it, it is quite, it feels sort of, it feels indulgent. It feels like you're um, writing something that's a bit namby-pamby because I was a hard news journalist. Um, and I'm not very good at sort of descriptions of places and, and things like that. I just wanted to sell, tell the solid story. Uh, so that took me a bit of time to learn. But I learned that under the tutelage of my editor. And were there other writers that you drew inspiration from or, you know, you picked up techniques from? Um, I, I loved commercial fiction. I'm not really someone who read for intellectual learning I read because I love stories so I read a lot of um I read a lot of Stephen King growing up I read a lot of um I read The Godfather which I loved I read speeches by Malcolm X because I loved rhetoric I loved the sound of language um and then I loved how it looks on the page uh so I, I just read a lot of commercial fiction and I read quite widely yeah, it's in, um, I was really interested what you said then about um, kind of setting mini de deadlines. And that's, I mean, that's how Lily and I approached when we wrote the freelancing for journalists, which is different being a kind of textbook, but we just, it just was too big. I couldn't kind of see the big picture. I was like, right, I need to write this chapter by this. I think that's just how our brains work as journalists, isn't it? It's um, I think it's interesting for those listening to know that you can take on those much bigger projects, but break it down and make it manageable and sort of do it in a form that you're. I think that's in. the only way to do it. I think the only way to do that is to approach it bit yeah. by brick by brick because you're building a wall. And if you look at the wall, you'll be overwhelmed. So you just have to lay each brick as perfectly as possible um, and forget about it. And the other thing I used to tell myself constantly was, even if I'm only writing a line a day, I'm writing more than somebody who's still sitting on the sofa and not picking up a pen. And that accumulation actually works. So I know some people, I know some people have deadlines of thousands and thousands of words a day, but actually the core thing I learned through the process of writing the Khan and that I'm now using with the sequel 
is that thinking time is important. It's really important to think about your work. And, and it's the same with journalism, isn't it? If you've got an interview that you've done and you've got somebody said commissioned something, um, you're probably thinking about it all the time, even when you're not doing the interview or doing the work, because somehow you're putting together the blocks of it. And it, it, it's, it was that, it was thinking, I've got to, I want to finish this book, but actually right now, all I've got to do is write two lines or this conversation, or suddenly I think this scene. And, and that's how I did it, just piecemeal. Yeah, I mean, that's right. That's so right. You are thinking about these things all the time. So I'm like, if I'm in the shower or going for a run, I'm kind of planning and totally yeah. and think about intros and structure. Um, but you don't necessarily count that, do you? Is you because you're not sat at your desk doing it. So it's a bit of a mind shift. Yeah, that's no, it's really funny. It's totally, and the shower is such an important part of thinking process. I remember when I first became a journalist um, and I, I loved it and I loved journalism so much that I... It didn't feel like work. And I had to actually remind myself, this is my job. And it's the same with writing where you, I had to give myself the permission to know that that thinking time is actually still working time. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And, and that's very difficult for people outside of journalism to understand that, isn't it? Um, one thing I wondered though, if, if you've got this, um, sort of elaborate fiction story and obviously you've got kind of threads through there that you might have to come back to at a later date there's kind of a bit of a twist towards the end how do you kind of map that out like do you physically like map it out like scene by scene chapter by chapter how do you make sure you have that sort of continuity I'm not really a planner you know some people they say you're a planner or a pantser so you fly by the seat of your pants or you plan um, I try and plan the beginning and I plan the end. I know how it's going to end, but I naturally let it evolve because um, that's what life does too. And also, um, when you first, when I first write a character, um, they're a bit hollow to me, and it's only when I live with them for a bit that I get to learn about them. Um, and then my, I got this great tip, which is spend a weekend thinking about your character when you go shopping, when you buy fruit, what would they buy, da, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and so that helps it grow. But I, I also think I naturally have that ability to hold, and maybe it's a part of journalism, uh, to hold multiple threads in my head at one time and know that I've got to finish it. Um, yeah, we're used I, to juggling lots of different stories and lots of different pieces at once, aren't we? Totally, yeah. And when you've worked, um, before I went freelance, because I did work for a newspaper and I did work for television, you are working on multiple stories at one time. Uh, so you develop the, that muscle in your brain where you can hold those concepts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I found it so refreshing to read a book told from a female Muslim perspective in this kind of patriarchal crime world I mean obviously I'm from Bradford so I was fascinated anyway because there was so much of it that was just um kind of just felt so real to me um but was there any resistance to telling this story from publishers what what's the reaction been from the Muslim community um sort of particularly in Bradford I suppose where the where the novel's set so the, there's not been any I have not encountered any resistance from uh Muslim community 
I think because people are just ready to read stories and actually, you know, it's not a homogenous thing. No community is homogenous, are they? And so, and you know, there is crime and there's good and there's bad and there's everything. And people are just ready to read really good stories um, that are juicy and interesting. The resistance was more from publishers because the way that publishing works is they look at something that's been done before and say, okay, this is a great story. We can market it in this way. And these were the statistics and these were the figures. So we'll buy it. But because the Han um, is new and it's wholly original and it's not been done before, they had nothing to measure it or map it against. So when it was sold, when it went, when my agent went to take it to publishers, a lot of them liked it, but they didn't buy it because they didn't know what to do with it. So that was the stumbling block. And then luck came into play because Point Blank, who are run by One World, they bought it, who are a small publishing house, but actually uh, have a lot of gravitas. They publish a lot of Booker Prize winners. Um, they, they bought it and then um, George Floyd was killed. And so we had the Black Lives Matter movement and Bernadine Evaristo and Rene Ido Lodge topped the uh, Times bestseller list. And suddenly uh, shops like Waterstones wanted to buy in books by women of color. And they went to publishers and said, we want these books. And so publishers then were able to push those stories. So that was the, the resistance was the publisher and then timing changed that. And hopefully I think things are a little bit different now. Yeah, I did wonder if that that would come into play because there's definitely been a shift, hasn't there, in the last couple of years where it's almost like publishers um, and publications are kind of scrambling for more diverse content, um, yeah. which is brilliant. But you, just, but, but at the same time, it's like, why have we not been doing this? It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's just business. It, it's good business sense to. Um, have stories from across the world and um, it's also if you look at business and where business is moving to you know China and India those are the big centers aren't they so isn't it useful for us to have stories that kind of nudge us towards that culture so we can have an understanding of it it's just it's just because they hadn't done it before and they're scared of anything that's new yeah and it's true though because when I was reading it I was thinking I really have not read anything from this perspective before. And that was, it was so nice to be reading something that it felt familiar within the kind of, like you say, the crime thriller genre, but from a, from a different perspective, it, it yeah. was just nice to read something different and not kind of the same old girl on a train. Yeah. Drivel. <laughs> I also think it's funny because I think women, we go through the same things. We're, we're experiencing the same things, just albeit in different clothes, if that makes sense. Um, and, and I wanted to write about that. You know, as women, we navigate these different rooms, right? We have to behave differently to men, even though we don't want to. We, we'd like to behave the way that men do, but it's read differently, isn't it, by different situations. So women are bossy, or um, whereas men are assertive, or women are aggressive whereas men just know what they want and um it's exactly the same concept as that just added with another layer if you're a brown woman or a muslim woman um and i that's one of the other things is how well women have 
kind of related to it and said, yeah, we totally get this. We totally understand what's going on here. Yeah, let's all, we all want more strong female characters kind of wherever they come from, yeah. don't we? Yeah. Um, yeah. We also noticed that there is a character in the in the home that's an editor at a local newspaper. So we're in, we want to know, was he or any other characters drawn from your personal experience? Do you know, I think everybody's drawn from personal experience. I'd be lying if I said any of the characters are just completely pulled from thin air. Um, so yeah, there's bits, I think there's bits of people in every single character. Um, I'd like to just say that I'm not a criminal and I don't know any criminals, but, um, but yeah, definitely. One thing you've kind of you've alluded to this already is, is that this, this book had kind of a long gestation period um, and you were writing it sort of each Saturday, putting time aside from it. So presumably whilst you were writing this, you were doing your everyday kind of freelance work. Is, is that is that correct? Is it was just something else, something additional you were doing? Yeah, it was. I mean, it's fascinating because actually the success of the Khan has fed back into my freelance career because um, there was a period where it was just really hard for me to pitch because I had small children and I just couldn't couldn't keep it going. So I was pitching, but it, it wasn't the amount of work I was getting commissioned to do just wasn't there. And so that gave me some time to do to work on the Khan. Um, but yeah, I was I was trying to do it all, which I which is why actually about three years ago when I was found out I was pregnant with my third child, I decided to stop writing because the Khan was sat there. It hadn't sold for all the reasons that we've talked about. And I just didn't have time. And I thought there's no way on earth I can do all of this. And then it, I got a new agent and it sold and then everything sort of seemed to come together. So there was a period where it just felt like I was um, taking it, I was, you know, you're taking a punt, aren't you? You're sort of betting on yourself really when you're writing for nothing because it's time that you're, you believe is going to turn into something financially lucrative, um, but you don't know that. So yeah, I was trying, but it was, it was tricky. It was a difficult time. Yeah, and one thing that we get asked about quite a lot, I think is how, as a freelancer kind of how to manage that time when your children are very young I know there's you know quite a few freelance journalists who've come to me and kind of asked for advice on how do you do it I mean I took proper maternity leaves each time I think that's the only way I kind of could do it I don't think I could have worked but it does change as your children get older so mine are now all at school um, I think you still have your <laughs> three-year-old at home but have you noticed that it does basically would you have any advice does it is it kind of just bide your time because it does change it does evolve as your as your children get older and their needs change yes it does it absolutely does and you get better at managing it as well and you get better at thinking less about it when you're with them uh, when I first started, I would be thinking about work all the time and I realised this is just terrible because it's not what I signed up for. I thought naively that I'd be able to be present with them and then do the work and it was all merging into one. But as time's passed, I've managed to compartmentalise it and get better, um, better at it. Uh, 
there's things I've learned along the way. I don't have to answer emails at exactly the point I receive them. Um, I've also found that a lot of commissioning editors are really understanding now um, about having children in meetings or saying, look, I can't do this because I've got this deadline or this kind of thing. Um, and also, yeah, it's it's passed so quickly. I mean, my youngest starts full time in September. Yes. Um, so I'm probably going to take a month off and just sit in a corner and rock back and forth for a bit. Um, but yeah, it does. It gets it gets easier. It gets better. You get better at managing it. And I just think the industry's more understanding now. I don't know if you found that. Yeah, I think lockdown really helped with that because all of a sudden everybody, it was just a completely level playing field. Everyone was at home dealing with their children. I mean, I was so looking forward to my three all being at school. And when that time arrived, lockdown happened. <laughs> so then I had them all at home. So, but yeah, everybody, I feel like I can be very honest about that. I don't think I ever tried to hide it, but I think that, that there's a new level of understanding yes. that everybody has. Because, you know, even those uh, kind of male editors that you might have who perhaps never been in this situation or never taken, you know, any extended childcare leave or whatever it might be, now fully understand because they were at home with small children running around them while they were trying to work. That is one thing. I think before the pandemic, before lockdown happened, people thought I was taking a soft option. They thought I was playing at being a writer and playing at being a freelance journalist because a lot of the time, unless they see your bylines over and over again, they don't understand the work that's going on behind the scenes to set those things up, do those interviews. They don't know. And then when lockdown happened, then they saw, actually, this isn't a soft option. This is really hard. And, um, you know, there is work going on here that we're not seeing. That that has changed things. You're absolutely right, completely. Um, I mean, it also sounds like you had quite supportive and helpful editors. And I think that's one part of the process that we don't necessarily hear much about. Um, How, as someone who was new to, uh, you know, the world of fiction writing, was that a bit of a different experience to having an editor than you'd had sort of in in journalism circles? You know, what I didn't know was how much of a book is a collaborative process. So when you hand in, um, as a journalist, when you hand in a piece, you've got to have all the elements of it there and they might edit um, and kind of, you know, restructure something at the start, at the end. But generally a good journalist um, hands in everything with all the facts checked um, and all the information correct and all the spelling done properly. Because if you don't do that, then you're, you know, what are they paying you for? Um, But with fiction, it doesn't work like that at all. So they have, someone who checks that there is continuity there's someone who checks your spelling there's someone who checks your grammar uh so that was wonderful it was sort of like having this entire team of people to polish up this thing and and actually by the end of it I did wonder how much of it was my work um and how much of it was theirs uh obviously they'll tell you it was mine and it it was my book but because I was so used to handing in this piece of finished journalistic news uh, that it was it was a revelation. That's really interesting. It's almost like you're kind of being pampered, aren't you? Completely. I'm completely being pampered. You are. And it's like, you know, when people say, let me call my people. It's like that. You have people. 
yeah and I have a publicist who I don't answer emails she does that with these things you know she emails me to say Sam are you free on this date because these people would like to invite you and pay you this you know as a journalist that's a dream right nobody ever does that yeah Um, so yeah it's totally you feel indulged and uh, pandered to and pampered and um, I was at Cheltenham uh, Literature Festival where people knew my name that was amazing I went on stage there were people who'd paid to come and see me you know it's it's fantastic you don't get that when you're a a reporter you sort of no quote no and people don't even like read your byline do they so they haven't got a clue what you've written (laughs) no they don't and one thing also I wanted to ask about because you you mentioned earlier about changing agent so I just wanted to ask a little bit more about that kind of process of like getting an agent I suppose and how do you know um you know they're the right agent for you because obviously you've had to be really persistent with this book um so how did that kind of process work so I had the same agent for a long time and I think she was introduced to me and and she was nice she was a you know a nice I liked her um but if I'm perfectly honest I think I was probably a bit intimidated by her and um she tried to sell it and it and it didn't happen and a lot of people said to me, oh, you should find a new agent. And I thought, I can't, I, I was new, I was quite fresh. And I thought, I can't do that to her. I just, she's been there and I can't do that. And so when I got pregnant, I thought, I've got to take time to think about what I really need to do next. Because when you start out, you think you just need to get an agent. You're desperate to get an agent. Any agent will do. And I don't think that's a good decision. So when I... Um, when I, when I found out I was pregnant and I emailed her and said, look, I think I'm going to stop writing and we should just kind of, you know, kind of call it quits on this um, business relationship. Um, it was quite a relief, actually. And one of the things I would say is when you do find an agent, make sure that you're, you feel safe with them. You're safe enough to receive criticism and you trust them enough to make good business decisions. That's the two big things because they're going to be negotiating for you, but they're also going to be telling you if your work isn't up to standard. And I don't, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the business of getting feedback. Criticism is hard um, and you get better at taking it, but it still, it still hurts. So for anyone who's looking for an agent, I would say, take your time and pick someone who you are confident and comfortable with and not intimidated by um, because they work for you yeah and if if you trust if you trust their judgment that's going to make it easier to when they give you those notes when they give you those uh you know not criticisms but you know when they're giving you feedback if you think that this person has a good sense of of what you're trying to achieve that's going to be easier to to take yeah they're your team so they represent you so you it's like it's like picking a husband or a wife you've got to pick the person who you know has got your back and who you can go to and and say actually you know or even have a good gossip with because you're going to be in meetings with people and you're not going to like them you, you need to go outside and know that that you're um you know your agent can have the same gossip with you 
you know, I just had to teach my husband how to bitch when I married him. Like, no, this is not how we do it. This <laughs> is what we do. And that, it, it's like that. Um, feedback's interesting because the first time I got notes on the Khan and I was desperate for notes because I'd done with it and I didn't know what to do with it next. And I embraced them and I just sat there and worked through them. And then halfway through, I was really tired. And then I had to remind myself, actually, even though this is feedback and even though you wanted it, it does feel like criticism because it's someone saying your work isn't quite where it needs to be. And with an article, you might have 1500 words that someone's critiquing, but with a novel, you have like 90,000 words. So that's a lot. So you do need a good agent who you can go to and say, look, I need a cup of tea and a coffee. Can we have a chat and, and see, you know, make me feel better. You know, they need to pander to you a little bit. Yeah, it's just your support team, right? That's yes. what they're there for. Um, so before we bring this to a close, we want to talk about what you're working on now. So you've got the second book. I saw, I've seen a couple of freelance articles from you recently. Um, there are probably other projects in the work that we don't know about. Tell us about this screenplay. Tell us about everything that's happening now. Uh, I've got an article in The Guardian this weekend, which is going to be really cool, which is about supplementary schools, which is really fun. So um, a photographer called Crave Evans has gone up and down the country taking pictures of supplementary schools like Polish school, Jewish school, Muslim school. Um, that's, that's quite a fun piece to write. So that's coming out uh, on Weekend Guardian. Um, working on the sequel of the Khan, which I'm supposed to be working on now, uh, and the big marketing campaign for the Khan and um, screenplay. So the Khan has been optioned for TV by um, BBC Studios for a returning TV series, but that's got nothing to do with me. They just come to me and say so and so is going to be in it or whatever. So waiting to hear about that. Um, I'm on the screen advisory group for the BFI and I'm just working on a couple of screenplays really just kind of seeing what comes next and open to commissions uh I was talking about this on Twitter the other day I'd love to write a parenting column but from a bit older perspective not just babies people want to write about babies a lot don't they I'd like to write about what it's like to parent eight nine ten year olds that kind of thing yeah I would as someone who is in that world now quite often harder in different ways than the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> than the babies but yeah tricky it's really funny Simon because when we started this conversation you were saying to Lily and I are you both so busy I don't know how you do it and that list you've just given me of everything that you've got on and everything you're working at the moment just blows my mind it's so funny isn't it how we can look at other people and think I don't know how you're juggling all this but we can't see it in ourselves how do we get better at that I know I, d I don't know how we get better my sister said to me today she said you need to be kinder to yourself um I, it's funny because I'm I'm ill at the minute I've got COVID I'm on the coming up the other side of it but I find that when I'm ill I lose perspective and I start looking at um other things that I shouldn't be looking at and generally how I survive is I only look at myself and I only look at my I see myself as the hero of getting to the next bit. And I think that's the only way to survive is to just look at your own work and make your work as good as possible and ignore the rest of what everybody else is doing. Because it's all so subjective. And I don't think any of it is a meritocracy. 
I think so much of it is about who knows who in, in journalism and in publishing. Um, but it definitely is in publishing. It's sort of like who knows who and who's got a name and who's got like a million internet followers. So you can't measure yourself against what anyone else is doing. So I think how we do it, we just, we just have to focus on that project that we're doing at the minute, don't we? Yeah, and you don't know the story behind it. You don't know, they might have had four articles published this week, but actually two of them they were working on two months ago. You just don't know kind of all the, time. the process all, behind I, it. Yeah, I think that all the time. Sometimes my articles come out all together in one week and I think, hang on, it looks like I've just been really busy, but that's been 12 years worth of work coming to fruition. So I think our conclusion is that we all just have to celebrate that we're doing a good job. We're very busy and we don't need to compare ourselves to anyone else, totally. um, but just get on with the job in hand. I think sisterhood and support is the way forward, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, that seems like a really good note, doesn't it, to bring this episode to a close. So thank you so much, Simon, for joining us today. It's really fascinating to kind of see that process and how it works. I know nothing about writing novels, so it's really, it's really interesting. Absolutely. Um, brilliant way to end the series thank you so much and we hope our listeners have enjoyed this bonus episode and we hope to be back with another profile interview next series yeah so in the meantime you can find out more about us and all of our resources at freelancingforjournalists.com uh, you can come and join our freelancing for journalists facebook community where Simon's also a member so if you've got any more questions for her head over there uh, and pick her brains Yep, and on social media, we're at Freelancing4, and you can follow us individually. I'm at Lily Cantor. And I'm at Emma Journo. And also big thanks, as always, to our research assistant, Helen Quinn, and our producer, Maddie Drury. And we'll be back again in the summer for another series, but goodbye for now. Bye.